We're, I'm just gonna riff. <laughs> this is good though. I feel yeah, like our chemistry is pretty we're good. Up. That's... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Center Ed Teaching. This podcast is sponsored and operated by the Center of Professional Education of Teachers, or CPET, at Teachers College, and we're kind of aiming to tackle the educational issues of the day with experts inside and outside the classroom. And we're going to hope with these weekly podcasts we can provide new possibilities for your classroom, discuss mainstream educational issues, and contextualize pedagogy and policy in the broader American context. I'll be your facilitator. My name is Matt Kautz. I formerly have taught in Detroit and Chicago, and I'm now a student at TC studying uh, the historical creation of educational inequality. Um, for our first podcast, we want to discuss Common Core. People on the left and on the right have supported Common Core in the past and have attacked it. Some teachers love it and some detest it. But what is it? How does it work? And maybe most importantly for teachers, how does this affect your work? Or maybe provide you another way to think about your work? To do this, we have scoured the city terrain to unearth two educational geniuses with lots to say (laughs) and a willingness to tolerate me for more than 20 minutes. On my left is Roberta Langa-Kang, um, initiative Director of CPET and Coach Extraordinaire. But for our listeners, Roberta, can you tell us just a little bit more about your past teaching and coaching experience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, When I was five years old, my mother caught me teaching a room full of my stuffed animals during <laughs> summer break. <laughs> and every year that I went to school... I wanted to teach that grade until I got to high school and I realized, oh no, it's really in high school. Um, To the point in which uh, I was actually, I I looked at teachers that struggled who were teaching me and thought, I will never do that when I'm a teacher. So I promptly went to college and, and joined the psychology department so that I could try to, you know, sort of in a uh, Greek fashion, try to avoid my fate. But it didn't matter. I, it came right back to education. Uh, once I graduated, uh, I went to high school English and I taught in Denver, Colorado for five years and then moved to New York City and taught at one of the largest comprehensive high schools still here in the city uh, for another three years before I transitioned into professional development. And I've been here for <laughs> a while now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, And on my right is the powerfully bearded and dapperly uh, dressed by Brian Vipreck. Brian is the leader of NTN, which we'll talk um, a little bit more. It's the new teacher network at TC. Um, But for now, Brian, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your past teaching and coaching experience? Sure. Um, I came to it a bit later than Roberta. I wasn't five. You weren't five? That's all right. No. Uh, Your experience still counts, Brian. Thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) Um, no, I was 18, though, and it was the summer after my uh, senior year of uh, high school, as I was getting ready to go off to college, that I uh, got my own classroom through um, a program called SummerBridge, which is now known in America as the Breakthrough Collaborative, uh, students teaching students sort of model. Um, and as a, as a just-finished high school student, um, I had middle school students in my own classroom, which was fantastic. And it was at that time that I... Um, I and the language I like to use about this is I, I, I heard the call to teach, um, and I've kind of been doing it ever since. Um, I taught middle school and high school uh, uh, in the United States and overseas in public schools and in private schools. Um, I've taught all sorts of different humanities classes, English, theater, um, Latin, um, a little bit of woodshop through a theater tech course. 
Um, and uh, I've been at CPET coaching now for f- about four years. Um, uh, and um, in the meantime, I'm trying to wrap up my uh, PhD in philosophy of education here at Teachers College. And as Matt alluded to, um, one of my responsibilities here at the center is to um, be the lead coach for the new teacher network. Um, which is a yeah, thank you. <laughs> which is a, a, a community of support for early career teachers who have graduated from Teachers College. So um, any Teachers College alum in their first three years of teaching um, is eligible to free professional development support from our network, and um, we're ready to uh, to to expand the network and uh, I don't know, do some good stuff. <laughs> Alright, so speaking of doing good stuff, let's do some good stuff with these standards. So, one place that I thought would be really great to start the conversation is thinking about Common Core Influencing Practice. When I was in my teacher ed program, and when I was first teaching, Common Core was all the rage. Everyone was all about it. Um, And so I've only really ever known teaching through Common Core, but through your guys' experience, you've had experience with different standards. And so I was wondering if maybe you could talk about the difference from how things used to be and how things are now. Back in the old days (laughs) when we didn't have the common core. (laughs) Well, I don't know. There was sometimes when we didn't have standards at all. I mean, in the private schools where I was working, Mm -hmm. like I was beholden to no standard. Mm -hmm. I had no guiding standards. So um, in those cases, you know, to the extent that I went digging into state standards where I was to help guide my instruction, that was helpful. But sometimes I was just kind of like out there figuring it out with Floating. a yeah, right. like a, a flashlight and a my eyes closed, fumbling in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the standards movement really comes across the country uh, around the 1980s, early 1990s. That's um, sort of an influx of. Uh, efforts across states to develop state standards. It's this time that the federal government was sort of dipping its toe into national standards, but to no avail. Um, But states were required to have standards. So when I started teaching many years ago, but uh, my first year was 1999, um, we had had what? Uh, It was such a party, uh, working 72 hours a week, (laughs) never (laughs) sleeping. Um, But we did have uh, state standards in Colorado, and and my professors really did did their due diligence to try to say, like, you need to aim towards something, right? The idea that our standards are aspirational, it's sort of naming what it is that we want our students to learn and be able to do throughout their their time um, in, in education in our field. And in many ways, the standards try to articulate why this field or why this discipline is valuable, why it's important. But I think one of the biggest differences reflecting on how were standards before the Common Core and how were standards after the Common Core. Before the Common Core, it was considered to be, from my experience in public schools, best practice to align your curriculum or your units or your lessons to standards. But no one was evaluating that. No one was asking me about it. Um, Maybe in my once a year observation, my AP would sort of say, where are your standards? But other than that, nobody really talked about it. But now in the era of Common Core, um, it's also an era of accountability. And so I see much more conversations and much more um, pressure on teachers to sort of be accounting for the connection to standards and also um, for them to sort of be representing and justifying their choices as a result of sort of bearing them in some way to the standards. Yeah, it's uh, that's 
way more adherence to any standard than I ever had in my teaching career. And, and you know, this might be a, an unfortunate confession on my part, but I, I can remember at no time in my teaching career um, ever being uh, held to account for any standards. Um, I would plan a curriculum map and unit plans and lesson plans and all of that was informed by a vision that I had about what a uh, prepared high school graduate mm-hmm. would look like. Prepared for what? Um, for me, that was I wanted all students to have the opportunity or access to attend mm-hmm. a university, so to be prepared to do university-level work, but also to just go into you know mm-hmm. the, the working world and get a career, whether that's in the trades or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, I was coming up with my own um, sort of notion of what college and career ready looked like to borrow the the Common Core language. Um, what that looked like, um, in in a way, I was I was developing my own standards. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, there's nothing standard about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think I want to talk more about what the standards are from here. But I think going back to the standards movement, it might be helpful for listeners to contextualize that a mm-hmm. little bit more. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, right, you have Nation at Risk mm-hmm. in the 1980s, which yep calls into question the quality the of American... The sky is falling! <laughs> which calls into question um, American education and competing in not necessarily just the global marketplace, but in terms of innovation, in terms of national defense, mainly national defense. And so there's this move to accountability. And so when I was teaching, right, we had the Michigan um, state standards, mm-hmm. but most of those state standards were specifically about content. Um, and they were incredibly wide-ranging. So as a teacher, to know where to begin, it was almost impossible to access, especially as a new teacher. And so I think one thing that might be helpful to talk about the Common Core is why are there actually so few standards? Mm-hmm. There's a huge thread, right, that spans K through 12, but why are what's, what's the core in Common Core here? Yeah, I think there are two things that, that are important to note. One is that the challenge around state standards uh, is that kids move (laughs) from Michigan to Wisconsin to, you know, they move from Detroit to Chicago. So when you have our our boundaries between our states are quite permeable. Uh, So when you have education that is very, very, very state centric, um, that's beneficial because states can customize for the needs of their community and local you know, school boards can uh, cater to the needs of their community. But in some ways, it's also problematic because, you know, in Michigan, maybe they're teaching algebra in ninth grade. Um, but in Chicago, they're, you know, in Illinois, they're teaching algebra in eighth grade. So the ninth grader comes over having just learned algebra, but all of their peers are now in algebra, too. And that's sort of a simplistic example and saying as a country, because we do have these permeable boundaries between states, if all of the states are sort of focused on a small core, get it, core? You're great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a small core of common standards and expectations, then we'll be doing um, better by our students who do live more mobile uh, lives rather than um, isolated in their states. And one thing is we are going to come back to this issue of states' rights and determining their standards later in our conversation, but I do think it's important to put in here that Common Core are actually state standards that mm-hmm. states choose to buy into. That's They're not right. actually a federal mandate That's right. in any shape or form. They elect to do them, and they can customize them up to 15% without losing any of the privileges that opting in uh, affords them. Um 
Well, you had wanted to, then the first question you started was like, why are there so few? And I think that's a, that's a really great question because m- many people might not realize that there are only really two strands of the common core standards. There's a literacy strand that then is teased out for uh, English language arts, which is our, our typical English classes or sometimes abbreviated ELA. Um, and then those standards are adapted for social studies, science, and technical subjects. And then there's a math strand. The math strand is more has some content um, in it according to specific topics that need to be taught. But also, and this is pretty innovative, um, there are a set of mathematical practices. Sort of say like mathematicians think this way or have these dispositions, and those are things that need to be explicitly taught. But beyond that, you know, there are about twenty literacy standards specifically, 10 reading and 10 writing. Um, There's a set of language and speaking and listening standards, and then a small set of language, which is more like grammar and convention standards, um, and then the math practices, and that's it. Yeah, and I I think of those two strands as the literacy strand and the numeracy strand. That's right. And that um, if you think about literacy really quite broadly, it's not just about reading and writing um, or it's not just about reading and writing in the English class. Right. Um, that um, there is are there are literacies that are um, uh, you know subtly different and discipline specific, um, but at the same time they kind of all funder, all fall under this umbrella um, uh, of literacy. Then that's why science and technical subjects somehow sometimes which which some people might find um, like incongruous um, to say that these are literacy disciplines. Um, they fall into the uh, under that that threat, and then the numeracy stuff is just an entirely different animal. And to recognize that the 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 habits of mind for literacy and numeracy have distinct threads, um, but those are our big umbrella. Those are our buckets, if you yeah. will. Yeah. How many yeah. metaphors do I need there? <laughs> A couple more would be okay, nice. Great. We are it's literacy after great. all. There you go. <laughs> so something that I think we're kind of teasing out, and I just kind of want to say is that Common Core is not about content. It's no. about the skills. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this kind of creates two responses. One is that you have teachers say, well, what, my content doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. All I am now is teaching reading. All I am is teaching writing. Um, and so we want to respond to that. But then, too, this also creates all kinds of freedom within curriculum mm-hmm. right. because you are not prescribed text. I mean, Common Core was so unprescriptive originally that people complained, and in the appendices they ended up adding recommended text that would be suitable for particular grade levels. So thinking about those two problems, how would you guys respond to teachers who might have those concerns? I think that it it speaks a little bit to something you brought up before, which is um, state or local control over schools. Um, The content standards, which are um, state by state, um, will vary uh, depending on the, the... political will of the people of that state. Um, and um, I, I think that offers states and schools uh, some, some, well, uh, some flexibility there to determine uh, what books um, people ought to be reading. I mean, this is, what books people ought to be reading goes way, 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 way back. I mean, Plato and the Republic is, you know, railing against the poets. Um, and uh, this notion that it matters um, what we ask people to read um, that Common Core sort of gives people some freedom. There is a is a I don't know. I think it's it's a 
it's it's a less is more sort of approach. That said, um, for me, it's just a question of the standards need to go side by side, right? A skill standard taken from the Common Core that speaks, say, to argumentative writing can be paired with a history standard from New York State that asks students to look at... Um, you know, whatever, uh, uh, belief systems. So now I'm going to teach argumentative writing while also teaching about belief systems in global history. Um, they are parallel, complementary, equally important. Um, and, you know, for me, all instruction, all planning of instruction has to come from both content standards of what to teach in terms of the quanta of information and knowledge, and then the uh, skill standards of the the things students need to be able to do mm-hmm. with that information. But I think that one of the big challenges is that that's how it should be. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and when we look at it on paper or we look at it in theory, in conversation, that's how it should be. But the reality of it is the standards came alongside a major push around accountability and you know, with no child left behind in full effect when the standards were released and connecting the standards then to assessments and then connecting assessments in many states to teacher performance, then it's not just the standards anymore, but it's who gets to interpret what the standard looks like, uh, right? So I'm looking at belief systems and argumentative writing I'm reading through the standard about, you know, students writing arguments and and who gets to decide what that looks like or whether or not we should be writing arguments or we should be writing narratives. Who decides how to prioritize those? And in an, you know, in an ideal world, in a theoretical space, the teachers would be able to say, oh, I, this is my goal for my classroom, and as long as I'm working within the standards and the content, then anything I do should be fine. But the reality of it is many of those teachers are facing end-of-year exams where the states or private for-profit curriculum companies or publishing companies have interpreted the standards for them and set out the knowledge bits of content and and the standard skills for them um, and they're assessing their students in in high stakes ways and so while I want to be able to tell the teacher dream your dream and match them up and however you want to create your curriculum as long as you're doing it within these very broad constraints you'll be great let's make it your own but I'm also cognitive or cognizant of the fact that they are facing real exams and they are facing real pressure to make sure that their kids perform well on those exams, even though they have no idea what's going to be on them. And and therein lies the rub. I can't really match the standards because I've got to teach the content to get the kids to do the test, but they can't do the test well because they don't have the skills, but I don't have time to teach the skills because I've got so much content to cover and around and around and around we go. And so that's a teacher's Saturday and Sunday afternoon. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think something that could be really helpful then and kind of germane to our discussion is talking about then how do you go about planning? with um, the Common Core State Standards because one thing for me when I had to do it that was always so daunting was just how massive Mm -hmm. an individual standard is and how unprescriptive it is in terms of how to teach it. Um, So I I was mostly an ELA teacher and so, you know, 9, 10.1, 11, 12.1, identify one theme or identify Mm -hmm. two themes in a text. But there's nothing in there that says about how to do that. That's right. And presumably that's a skill that on a test, yep. that in life a kid's going to need. So 
if I can put away the the political side of it for a second, which we will come back to, how do I navigate mm-hmm. that? Can I just? I'm going to tell a story, <laughs> um, and and I think my story goes to directly to your point, but it sounds strange. My, um, when my first son, who's ten now, was maybe like a year and a half years old, a year and a half old, one day, he came to me with a pair of his shoes. And he wanted to go outside. And I was like blown away by the fact that my kid went to like the front door where we keep all the shoes and he pulled out his shoes. And the reason that blew me away, I know it's a small thing, but like (laughs) these guys are looking at me like, okay, mom. No, this is why I'm telling you this story. Because what I realized in that moment was this little person who had been on the planet for less than two years, right, could not talk yet. He knew that in order to go outside, Mm -hmm. he needed to get his shoes. Well, where were the shoes? That means he needs to know where the shoes are kept. That means he needs to know, you know, navigate through the space in our house. And he needed to find the shoes. And he knows he can't put them on himself. So he knows he needs to bring them to me and then stick his little feet out. So I started to think about, like, all the little things that he needed to know and understand in order to realize, in order to get to go outside. So to meet his goal, he had to go through, like, 10 to 20 invisible steps in order to make this determination or to do this one action that I could see, he had to do 20 actions and, and sort of mental um, steps that I could not see. And I had no idea that he could do that. And that's the thing about learning, right? Is that like the day before he couldn't do it. And then that day he could. But I think that the same is true for our kids, right? That we have these standards and the standards are the outcome. It's what you can see. You can identify the themes. I have found these themes, right? That you can, you know, write this argument or that you can understand this close reading uh, of the word in context, right? Thinking about some of these uh, literacy standards. But there are so many invisible things that a student has to do in order to get to that outcome. And that's really the teacher's work. And that's a, it's a hard thing for teachers to figure out, too, is like, well, what are all the steps? If I'm working backwards from that big idea that I'm going to be able to see, what are all the small moves, little invisible, or I'd call them micro strategies or micro skills that kids need to be able to do? So you got this big macro standard, right, an argument. And then all of the little mini invisible micro skills that kids need to have along the way. And that's where the teaching comes in. Not to shamelessly plug here, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, We actually have a macro micro worksheet to help teachers when they're going through and planning their work. It's on our blog. Um, Just go ahead and visit CPET at Teachers College. Visit our website and you'll be able to find that and then use it in your own practice. Brian, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit, but talk about kind of the same way with planning and maybe a little bit broader way. Sure. Um, a lot of people say, God, the Common Core is just all about informational text. Mm-hmm. There's no room for narrative. It's all argumentative fact-based. Yeah. Respond. Yeah, not, I mean, <laughs> the, the, not so much. <laughs> is, that the, is that the best response? Um, the idea that, that the majority of text students should be engaging with is informational text is across all content areas, right? This does not mean that 75% of the text that you're reading in the ELA classroom need to be informational text. Um, the, the, by putting, um, by thinking of science, social studies, technical subjects, all in that literacy strand or that literacy bucket, those constitute a lot of the text with which students will engage. 
Um, so there is place for poetry. There is place for fiction writing, um, fiction reading and fiction writing. So I think that's something that you were talking about that's really important to understand is that this reading doesn't mean everyone's necessarily teaching reading all the time, but it is part of the curriculum. And it's not just in the ELA classroom that students are reading. They're reading in math. They're mm -hmm. reading um, in science. And I think it would be impossible to have a history or social studies class without reading. Well, and that's something that the New York State has actually done a really nice job of in articulating the shifts in as a result of the standards, here are some shifts in teaching. They call them the six instructional shifts. Um, and they, they talk through six points, both in the literacy standards and in the math standards, where where our teaching maybe can or could or should shift um, in response to the standards. And one of those major shifts is reading domain-specific texts mm -hmm. across the content areas. And they're, what they're pushing back is this idea that we can learn history through you know, PowerPoint slides and note-taking, or just through the teacher telling me what the story is, or just sort of like answering questions at the back of, of the book, um, but that students should be reading history mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually like wrestling with it and struggling with it a little bit, um, but that they should be learning partly through the reading process in addition to all of the other instructional strategies that they can learn. Um, and for a period of time, I think that there was a shift away from that. And, and you know, here the state is, New York State at least, is calling out like, no, actually, students should be responsible for, for figuring out the, the, the reading of these domain-specific texts. And, and also just to point out, I'm, first of all, speaking of shameless plugs, I'm going to shamelessly plug corestandards.org, which is where you can find the standards listed. Um, and I'm going to encourage teachers who have confusion or parents or students or anyone who has any kind of confusion about what the Common Core Standards say to actually go and read the actual Common Core Standards. They're yeah. there for you. And the they specifically call out the reading of literature and the reading of informational text. Yeah. The both or both um, you know genres, if you will, they're not even genres, but both buckets of texts are uh, called out and the specific uh, skills that students need to access and uncover and explore and learn from those texts, they're, 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 they're all there for you. Um, and so I, I want to get into that, but I also just want to touch on Roberta's point. Mm -hmm. If you're interested about how this kind of literacy is shaped in disciplines, you can check out our other podcast that's specifically about discipline literacy, where we have our special guest who really brings an insightful discussion. Um, but getting back to what you were mm -hmm. saying, Brian, I think something that we've talked about and we've kind of come to a conclusion on our own, but maybe is worth rehashing for our listeners, is the idea that the issues with Common Core have often been in the delivery of Common Core to teachers and to schools and to parents, as opposed to what's actually in the standards themselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can talk about the way Common Core has been rolled out that has created these misconceptions. <laughs> well, I so I, I can I. It's my Please. story time. Um, I was uh, recently in conversation with um, a a parent of a, a soon to be second grader, and they're changing schools. Um, and uh, this parent was very very concerned that the school system that her child was soon to go to um, was Common Core, um, and she thought of that as um, federal government top-down, mm -hmm. telling the teachers what to teach to the kids, um, that it was homogenized, mm -hmm. that it was just um, uh, not 
able to respond to the unique desires and boundaries that different communities and even different people have. And um, I think that might be part of the, the, the problem with the rollout of Common Core is that it may sound like some set of national standards. Everyone must read this book and not that book. That really grates, I think, especially against, to get grates against this idea of um, uh, local control of schools that mm-hmm. we have uh, in America. Um, and just sort of the American sort of ethos of individualism and self-determination um, uh, that's so like foundational to the idea of who we are as Americans. Um, that the idea of, of national control just, just sticks in the craw of a lot of people, but yeah. it's, it's not national control. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I mean, that's... That, well, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. I, I, I agree with you, and I think that one of the biggest problems that the Common Core has had an experience in... I think primary reason that there's been a major opt-out movement and a lot of critique against the Common Core is around optics, mm-hmm. right? Is on like how it looks and how it feels and then seeing things that I don't understand, right? So my my first grader comes home with math homework and I and I can't do it <laughs> as a parent. Like that that's gonna freak you out. And so I think that one of the problems that the implementation has had is not really helping parents to understand how their children are going to be taught differently than how they were taught. And that has happened so much more in the early childhood and young elementary math program than any in any of the literacy standards. But because they're working through several different pretty progressive um, math techniques and strategies around doing some of the basic math, um, it's not necessarily more efficient, um, but it is more comprehensive and it helps students to better understand the relationship between numbers rather than just the the basic algorithms. And I think that's been a real tension for parents. Um, but in terms of like the implementation for teachers, there are some legitimate critiques of that well, before, that I would level. Yeah, before we get into the teachers, though, I just want to add one layer mm-hmm. to this conversation because I think something that's missing is this talk about optics is really the way... Common Core has been politicized, and so framing it as an infringement upon states' rights. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the standards, it's hard-pressed to be like, well, no, I don't want a kid to learn how to determine a fact. I, I don't, well, I'm not against a kid learning how to make a claim or a counterclaim. I mean, Common Core is really basic. I, I think you could even argue that it doesn't necessarily go far enough. But I think it's been politicized, especially in this you know, um, partisan climate that we live in right now that's really also created this tension without people really digging in for themselves. Yeah, everyone was for it before everyone was against it. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And, and I think I, I saw this um, really in Michigan. Michigan was set to adopt the Common Core, and despite the struggles that state has had, um, it's usually been pretty progressive in education, going all the way back to John Pierce in the 19th century, which no one else cares about. But <laughs> way to go, history. <laughs> um, but one of the things was uh, the governor Rick Snyder wanted to continue to adopt Common Core, but because it was unpopular, he cut the funding for professional development. And I think once again, that's something that's becoming politicized, but also directly affects teachers, which that's I think right. is what you were about to get into. That's absolutely right. And the same thing, not exactly the same thing, but something similar happened in New York State. The Common Core comes out in 2010. They start assessing for the Common Core in 2012. But prior to between 2010 and 2012, just two simple school years, there was not nearly the type of 
rigorous professional development that teachers needed to completely redesign their curriculum or completely change their approaches to teaching concepts that had seen relatively no innovation uh, for 15 or 20 years. We had, prior to the Common Core, we were still teaching the way that we had taught, we had learned. Um, Mm -hmm. So the idea that within two years with relatively little professional development, um, teachers are going to be able to suddenly, you know, adapt their curriculum to a a whole new set of standards, which were much more rigorous than the previous set. They They all raise up what the expectations should be for kids at every level. But then teachers did not have enough professional development training or support to understand what those shifts should be. Or how to make that big gap. So sure, I can teach that. If my kids come to me on level, I can keep them on level. But how do I take them from below and and bring them to on or above? That's a real challenge. That's then coupled with assessments. And again, I talked about this accountability movement is kind of churning towards us. So not only are students assessed for how well they're doing with the Common Core with just a year or two years of maybe curriculum that's aligned to it, but now Schools are being evaluated publicly as a result of those standards, and teachers are being evaluated publicly as a result of those standards. And and I'll say that one of the reasons that I think we've had such a huge movement and political backlash against the Common Core is that all of a sudden, kids who typically did well on, on state tests, kids who typically performed well from you know, middle class or upper middle class, you know, families or, you know, people who I care about my kids education and I'm helping them with their homework. All of a sudden, when those students start slipping is a problem with the test. There's a problem with the standards and it's, but it's not the standards themselves. It's this connection between the standards, the the curriculum, the professional development, uh, and, and the assessments. It's all of those things combined that made it such a hotbed. So Brian, I want to take Roberta's point um, and ask a new question and put it to you. Because I think for teachers, this is a really valuable one. Because if I'm a teacher and I'm listening to this, I've just said, well, you've articulated everything I hate about the Common Core and why, like, I don't want to do it. It's been unfair to me. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to that teacher? How would you try to convince them that this is a worthwhile pursuit? Or would you? No, I, I definitely would try to convince a worthwhile pursuit. Um, no, I think that um, to the extent that um, teachers, like anyone who's setting out on any sort of uh, very complex process, um, need to have some end in mind, some goal in mind, right? Um, and there, you know, you don't set out on a big road trip unless you know where you're going. Well, I've done it before, but... You know, Jack that, Kerouac that, book out of it. Exactly, exactly. Um, but that's a that's an entirely different project altogether. Um, but if we want to say that by the end of twelfth grade, students will be able to do a set of things, they will have a set of skills. Well, let's let's articulate them, and then let's work backwards to say that okay, well, by twelfth grade, we want them to be able to do this. By tenth grade, that. Eighth grade, seventh, and walk it back from there. So. To the extent that um, when a teacher sits down to plan and has you know a whole year's worth of curriculum to, to, to set up, backwards planning is usually a, a, a very helpful and useful way to go about that. And if we're starting at the very end, the very end is what do we want a graduate to be able to do? And the Common Core tries to articulate that grade by grade. So if I'm a seventh grade history teacher, well, what are the skills that 
we want our students to be able to have at the end of the seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And once I have a notion of what I'm aiming for, then I can start to backwards plan Mm -hmm. the steps to get me there. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think it makes teacher planning so much easier because there isn't some Mm -hmm. notion of, 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 well, what do I even want my students to be able Mm -hmm. to do? Well, that much at least um, is set for me. Skill-wise from the Common Core, content-wise from the state standards, and then I plan backwards from that. Mm -hmm. And so I think really the argument that sounds like you would make to a teacher is Common Core has articulated what is college ready, Mm -hmm. what is career ready, and and that's why it's a worthwhile pursuit. And so I'm wondering as an exercise for a teacher, you know, maybe you're listening to this, maybe you're not buying into the conversation. Take 10, 20 minutes, sit down, write, what do you think, what skills do you think your students need to be successful? Mm -hmm. And then compare that to Common Core. Is there alignment there? Because I think there is something that teachers also feel is that You know, teachers didn't make these standards, and it's being pushed Mm -hmm. down upon them. And teachers are the hardest working people in the world in the most noble profession, but they're often not treated as such. And and so I think that also might be some of the disconnect. And and I think maybe that exercise and seeing similarities could be helpful. But Matt, I think that that's such a great suggestion because the best thing that a teacher can do in a situation where they're, they're being forced into practices that they don't believe in, um, it's more likely that those practices are being forced on them by people who don't understand the Common Core, Mm -hmm. by a curriculum company that slapped a Common Core sticker. No offense, curriculum companies, but that's what you did. (laughs) Slapped a Common Core sticker on an old textbook and said, hey, look, buy more of me. Um, Or by, uh, you know, test makers who have cherry-picked certain standards and made them the is-all, be-all of the Common Core, um, or, you know, well-intentioned local school leaders who have sort of taken their cues from what they've heard and then are now implementing that about your bulletin board or about, you know, how many questions you need to have on your test or whatever, and, and all saying it's Common Core, it's Common Core. The very, very best way to to negotiate those spaces is by knowing the common core very well yeah and one thing that i'll just build on that because i mean i think we all know this you know being teachers (laughs) time it's something that's very finite in a teacher's life and so i think finding the time to do this um, is incredibly difficult and maybe it waits to the summer for you but i do think at least for me in my own practice it was something that was helpful to say okay, I'm saying that this is good to teach to students. Well, what is it that I actually think students should know? Mm -hmm. Well, to to determine what is a fact and what is a good source is actually something that's really important for me Mm -hmm. to have. So, and I started to see those parallels. And just, you know, building on the connection, one of the challenges that Common Core has has been around optics. The second best thing that a teacher can do is really help to educate their kids and their parents mm. about mm-hmm. what is it that we're doing, why are we do, why is it that we're doing this, how is it connected to the Common Core? Because I think a lot of parents who are very, very, very concerned about the Common Core, with impacting their classrooms or impacting their kids, um, are are concerned because they don't understand what it is that's happening. But if teachers were able to do a little bit more outreach or be a little bit more explicit about, hey, I'm sending home this this you know math homework or this math assignment, and here's a little blurb about like what we're doing and you know a worksheet of like this is the strategy that I'm teaching your kid and here's why. I think that there would be a lot less 
concern about what is my kid learning and why. Um, so if teachers were a little bit um, more explicit about what they were doing and why, I think that that would go a long way with the non-teacher community. Yeah, I think that's a that's the sort of the second benefit that teachers can draw from from knowing the standards. And by knowing, I don't mean memorizing them. Right. Just, no, no, no. You know, I I, I mean I don't <laughs> I don't know anyone who has them memorized. Um, but uh, the the idea is number one it. For planning, it can point you in the right directions, uh, and so you kind of know your your destination, which is great. But the other is it offers a common language that we can use to explain the work that we're doing, um, either to people within the school, like uh, supervisors and evaluators, or to stakeholders who are outside the school, like parents or even politicians, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, to say that this is the sort of thing that we need to do in the classrooms, and use that as a justification for making um, professional decisions about allocations of time, money, other material resources, and say, we ought to focus on this right now because this is the sort of, um, this is the sort of graduate we want to produce. This is the sort of um, a well-equipped, college- and career-ready person we want to set loose into the world. And, and so something that you both just said that I think is so important and often goes underlooked is bringing parents yeah. into the schools because I feel like a lot with the standards-based movement, we've moved to skills are pieces of this technocratic machine of an economy and we have to put skills in them. But I think there's also a civic value mm-hmm. possibly from Common Core. Um, so I was just wondering, just real quickly, if there are any you know, social benefits that you see from the adoption of these standards or drawbacks that you see maybe for teachers to consider? Well, I think one of them is clearly the, the value that Common Core puts on argument. Um, and is that a benefit or a drawback? I think it's a benefit. <laughs> okay. I, I, I think it's a benefit. And I mean, and I don't just mean that in terms of our, you know, our current polarized political climate. Um, and, um, and I'm not talking about, when I say argument, I'm not talking about arguing. Um, I think hmm. argument, if we, if we can throw it back to a classical notion of um, uh, agonism versus antagonism, mm-hmm. whereas antagonism would be like sort of what we see on cable news shows today, people hollering at each other. But agonism is uh, this idea that people with competing, uh, perhaps even diametrically opposed ideas can sit down and or, or in writing have a conversation mm. that is uh, uh, just or is uh, you verify or justify your claims with facts mm-hmm. um, as opposed to uh, just appeals to emotion um, or appeals to um, uh, non-rational ways of knowing. Um, this idea that we can, um, through rational examination and argumentation, um, make better decisions going forward as a people or as a community, however small or large that community is, I think that's incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. valuable and in precious short supply right now. Yeah. I'll add that a benefit that I see is in having the shared conversation mm-hmm. and being able to use a shared language and developing a shorthand in the educational community around the standards and their benefits uh, and really elevating the the question of like what should we teach and why? Yeah, that's an important conversation, and we should be having it. And um, I think that that's a, a great benefit to the Common Core. Whether we agree that it should be this, you know, that the standards should be this way or that way, or implemented this way or that way, having the conversation is extremely valuable. And then for those who are participating in education but aren't educators, right? For students, for families. 
um, for policymakers. The idea that we are setting a national goal for what students should be able to know and be able to do before they end their time in high school, I think is very valuable. We do live in a mobile society. Um, people are living in one state, working in another state. They're, we're traveling all the time. Um, we have global economies and global businesses, and we're just we're not as isolated as we were anymore, mm-hmm. for better or worse. So the idea that one state has drastically different expectations for their children and another, than another state who are maybe sitting right next to each other and often share the same communities, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think that that's sort of a mistake in our thinking. So... As there are that, some drawbacks. <laughs> yeah, no. Is that all so, like happy and skittles so, and roses? So having the benefit of being the facilitator and getting to go last, um, <laughs> I get to be the most provocative. Oh, wait. Um, yeah. Come at me, so, so I think one thing that I see has the possibility of being a benefit or a drawback. Given Common Core's focus on skills as opposed to content, in some ways that really creates an existential crisis, I think, for schools. Because what is the content that you are going to prescribe. One way to think about this is, you know, in English classes, are you teaching the traditional canon? Or is this an opportunity to move to a more inclusive curriculum? You know, if we do that, we can start to mold a different type of society, whereas if we don't, you know, there could be some really negative drawbacks and we could see marginalization of people that we have seen in this country. And so I think that there's great benefit there to be able to come together as a society, as communities, and take ownership of schools with what the schools teach. But I do think it's also a drawback in that there could be pushback, there could be disagreements that could, in the end, hurt teachers and kids from being able to do what they want to do. Yeah. So, (laughs) on that happy note, um, that's about all the time that we have. Uh, for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Please check out um, our website. Remember, we're CPET at Teachers College and leave a comment or check out our blog and take our resources. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.